Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Talia Fagenbaum. Talia is the principal family lawyer at Fagenbaum Family Lawyers, and she is the honorary secretary of Unchain My Heart Incorporated, a working committee of Jewish women's organizations dedicated to the resolution of religious divorce issues affecting Jewish women. Talia, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be with you. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, why did you decide to go into law? Good question. I think if I reflect back on it, I, I was always passionate about things. I just didn't know what to be passionate about. Okay. Uh, when I finished school, I was quite young. I was 16. I hadn't yet turned 17 um, and had a lot of energy and, and, as I said, passion, but not sure where to direct it. So I thought uh, a good law degree might try and hone, hone me in and um, give me some definition um, and direction. Uh, which I did together with an arts degree, um, just to give me some clarity about where I wanted to put my energies and, and focus. This was in Melbourne? I started off in Western Australia, mm-hmm. uh, spent the later part of my childhood there. Uh, so I did primary school, high school, and then the first three years of university there, and then transferred over when I came to Melbourne. And how was that shift for you? It was fine. Um, There was a few things that happened in between um, that got me to Melbourne. I was in the States for a little bit. I was in Israel for a little bit um, before coming and and making the move to Melbourne, um, which has been great. I call Melbourne home now. It's it's a very vibrant cultural city, which is very enjoyable to live in. Was there, so when you finished law, you got the law degree that you found that did hone you in, direct your passion? In a sense, yes. As I said, there was a few other things that happened in between. Um, I, I first completed my arts degree, which I majored in revisionist history and women's studies. Um, and I really, I felt that was um, giving me a, a, a lot of um, inspiration in terms of looking at things from different points of view, uh, looking at inequality um, in, from a historical perspective and the different things that lead to uh, inequality, um, and then seeing the law as an opportunity to try and redress some of those inequalities. Um, I also took some time out from my legal studies in between finishing my arts degree and then going on to do law to do a bit more um, focus on some spiritual studies as well. So that's what took me to New York and Israel. Uh, and then came back, um, recharged and, and got straight back into law and, and finished it off and said, um, this, is, this is where I think it's at. This is where I'm, I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. And when you started practicing, you were in commercial law? I started, actually, I got an opportunity to do my legal placements in a boutique family law um, firm, uh, which was a, a startup law firm. And it gave me a really great hands-on experience um, with some of the much more difficult areas of family law. So the real uh, family violence, um, abuse, uh, neglect, those kind of issues. Um, and uh, it, it felt right. It felt right to be practising in, in that space and in seeing how the law can really assist people going through real troubles. So that was in your placement? 
That was in my placement. After that, they offered me a job as a junior, mm-hmm. um, which I gladly accepted and stayed with them for a good few years, um, developing as a, as a family lawyer. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After that, uh, as you mentioned, yeah, I did take a, a break from family law. I had a bit of a burnout. Okay. Um, it, it was dealing with those issues constantly every day was, was quite overwhelming, especially mm-hmm. as, a, as a junior. So I uh, cleared my head, went into commercial for a bit. Um, and then certain things developed and happened and I decided um, family law is where things are, are meant to be for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's what prompted me to start up my own firm. When you say as a junior, is that more because of a lack of experience with this sort of stuff or because specifically the duties of juniors were more difficult in some way? Uh, Probably the lack of experience, um, maybe lack of good mentoring as well. and, and just the uniqueness of that position was it was very hands-on. Um, it, usually in, in when you, a junior starts out in a grad position, they don't have so, so much full-on client experience. It's mm-hmm. more of a gradual progression into that. Um, the nature of my firm, though, because it was such a small startup, um, everybody was involved in everything. Um, so, you know, client contact right from the beginning um, and hearing some really, really difficult stories um, day in, day out, uh, had, took a toll after a while, I think, yeah. Yeah. What was it, uh, was there something that got you through the difficult day in, day out of it? I think the knowledge, the awareness that um, my work was helping make a difference to one family or to one woman or to the lives of these children, uh, at the end of the day, that's... that gave me the conviction to go back the next day, mm-hmm. um, just to know that those um, every interaction that I had with the client was a ray of hope for them. Um, they could um, see that there was a future through the legal system potentially. Um, that's, I think, gave me the conviction to keep going, yeah. Is there is there a particular moment that, that stands out as a sort of, I forget this, I'm, I'm skipping mm-hmm. out of family law? No, I, I think it was just a headspace. Um, mm-hmm. I had uh, it coincided with the birth of one of my children as well. So I was I had taken uh, mat leave and was just re-eva- reevaluating where I was in terms of life and career and uh, all those types of big um, picture questions, um, and decided maybe a bit of a change was in order. And so how long were you in commercial? Did it for about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, as I said, a range of factors happened at that stage. There was uh, f- a feeling of um, I was missing something. You know, commercial law is great, um, but I didn't feel it to be meaningful in the sense that I had felt when I was practicing in family mm-hmm. law. Um, I was also a bit disconcerted with the emphasis on meeting KPIs and billable targets and, um, you know, being um, responsible for every second or being having to report on every second of your time. I felt that that really um, minimised the ability to give legal service um, in a complete and holistic way. You know, if you're jotting down every second of a phone call that you're with a client and you know that you're billing them for it, you feel more restricted about 
you know, um, having just a general conversation with them um, because they're going to get a legal bill at the end of that and say, <laughs> she, you know, she's charging me for asking me how I am and <laughs> I'd rather not pay for that. And family law isn't that extreme? <clears throat> In many of the family law firms it is. Um, but... But a Fagan Bum family law is... <laughs> We do things differently, um, which is one one of the things that prompted me to start up my own firm. So it was it was a combination of wanting to get back into family law, um, wanting to provide a different type of legal service, and the third aspect, which was the increasing number of Jewish clients that were coming to me, saying I need help with my Jewish divorce. There's I don't know what to do. I don't know who to turn to. Can you give me some support or some help knowing that I had a, a background in, in family law? So those three things kind of all collided at the same time and gave me the impetus to take a deep breath and a jump into the deep end. Okay. So let's talk about this. For those people who are listening who who have no familiarity whatsoever with Jewish religious law as it pertains to divorce, mm-hmm. what are the what are the relevant moving parts? Okay, so in Jewish law, um, when a marriage comes to an end, um, there has to be the deliverance or the transmission of a Jewish divorce document that we call the get, um, and it principally has to be provided from the husband to the wife for the divorce to be affected, okay? Without the religious divorce, even if the couple has been divorced civilly, they remain married according to Jewish legal principles. Okay. Often what will happen is the religious divorce gets subsumed within the general civil divorce proceedings and gets used as a tool effectively to try and manipulate those proceedings. So let's say the marriage is broken down, the couple find themselves in family court um, with disputes about uh, property separation or parenting arrangements. The get, which is the divorce document, the Jewish divorce document, can be used as a tool to manipulate the outcome of those proceedings, particularly uh, by the husband. So the husband, because he has, uh, there's a religious requirement for the husband to give this, this get document to the wife, he can use that as a, as a um, piece of leverage and say, exactly. I'm not handing over this document unless demands X, Y, Z are met. Exactly. And that's common? It became increasingly common um, in my experience uh, in the la- over the last five years. I started to see more and more cases of this um, really? happening. Yeah. Just the last five years specifically? Specifically. It may be- have, I mean, it, it has been around for years before that, mm-hmm. um, but I noticed a spike in it in, in the last few years, which I'm, I'm not quite sure why. It could be a result of um, many marriages breaking down generally and with it, with the increase in marriage dissolution comes more opportunities for get refusal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be um, more the awareness um, that the religious divorce can be used in this way, whereas maybe pre- previously um, it wasn't available. Um, not not quite sure. We're still in kind of the watching the space area to see to see what the reasons preempting it are but it, it's certainly becoming com- is common in my experience yeah it's becoming increasingly so it seems yeah and so when someone comes to you with a problem like this uh that say a woman's going through a divorce and her husband's using the the this get as a as a as a um what 
as a tool against her? What would you say? There's no silver bullet that can Mm -hmm. answer her struggles or fix the problem. It would really, we we look at a range of options, uh, both legal and non-legal, strategic. Um, We look at mediation, we look at um, negotiations, uh, we look at using uh, or coordinating our responses with the Melbourne Beth Din, which is the rabbinical court, or the Sydney Beth Din, if it's a matter in Sydney. we look at whether it would be appropriate to use the family court um, as a means of, of providing relief. If there's already family court proceedings on foot, then we seek to um, include the GET issue within those proceedings. Uh, sometimes it may be relevant if there's intervention order proceedings going on, so that's family violence related proceedings, then we could use that as a, as a means of um, relief. So th- there's really a range of different options. Um, each depends on the circumstances mm-hmm. of the case. Very, very specific and situational. Yeah. yeah. When uh, when you you said you mentioned the Melbourne Beth Din or the Sydney Beth Din, there's a religious courts of rabbis. Yeah. When they do get involved, what does that usually look like? Uh, so the Melbourne Beth Din is a little bit different to the Sydney Beth Din. Uh, I know in Sydney um, the the rabbis will be a lot more proactive in. Um, let's say, naming and shaming a recalcitrant spouse in trying to bring about an end to the recalcitrance in um, uh, using some of their more um, traditional religious uh, means of bringing about an end to the refusal. So not allowing the recalcitrant husband to enter into a synagogue or to participate in um, a quorum of men that are gathering to pray or to... um, withhold certain religious privileges, mm-hmm. which is often quite effective. Um, in Melbourne, for different reasons, the, the Beit Din takes a more of a, um, a neutral stance and they see themselves more as a facilitator. So they'll, they'll work together with me or with us in, in trying to bring the parties together where they can. Uh, but at the moment, they're a bit more just uh, facilitative in... in um, in, in in the proceedings, let's say. Is is there uh, a specific reason for that? That's. I, I think it's just a general um, decline in the authority, let's say, of the of the Beit Din um, in terms of where they were a hundred years ago or one hundred and fifty years ago, mm-hmm. and how central the rabbis generally were in in a community, um, and how much more authority they had in, let's say, the shtetl, you know, compared to a metropolis like Melbourne, where many families aren't affiliated with um, their religion or their culture, their tradition at all. So a a rabbi to them doesn't hold much authority over them, so to speak, whereas uh, maybe 100 years ago, um, the rabbi of the village or the shtetl was a a very key figure in in a person's life. Is there anything that you've found to be uh, surprisingly effective in dealing with these sorts of cases? I think as we are changing our language uh, in terms of how we characterise the behaviour from a perspective of framing it within um, abuse, let's say spousal abuse, family abuse, family violence, um, when we 
it's been a very um, conscious shift uh, towards framing it and characterizing it in, in that way, mm-hmm. it's having a quite significant impact um, because it brings to light the underlying motives and, and the actual, the essence of what the behavior is. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we're just talking about it in, as recalcitrance or refusal, it, it's not really getting to the crux of the issue, which is about manipulation of power, coercion, trying to assert control over a former partner. Um, so when we talk about it as get abuse, um, we are tending to have more of an effect in um, resolving certain situations. Mm-hmm. And yeah. do you mean to, in terms of discussions like in uh, court or in broader society? Both. Both. Yeah, within the legal proceedings um, and in raising um, an attitude of um, intolerance to such behaviour, uh, whereas maybe previously our communities would have tolerated it mm-hmm. when we're t- making the shift to, um, I guess, uncover it for what it is, it does become intolerable. So there's much more community pressure on a person who's refusing to give a get than maybe there was 50 years ago um, when seen in, in the light of um, the abusiveness of the of the behavior right so so that's in terms of the community it's a sort of shifting cultural more where people are becoming more aware of this and saying this is something that we're not going to consider okay yeah people do that and and in terms of how you talk about it in court so in the legal process what our challenge there is to do is to demonstrate that it's not a religious issue per se because we have a separation of powers in Australia, as in most Western countries. Mm-hmm. So um, state and religion are kept separately. The state, uh, our constitution uh, prevents the Commonwealth government from making laws in relation to religion um, and religious practices. So there is quite a strict separation. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means though, is that many judges, let's say in the family court, and we've seen a few recent decisions where they've been acting on this, is that they are taking a step back when we have get-related issues coming before the family court. So they'll say, well, wait one second, this is um, a religious issue, separation of powers, it's not constitutional for us to make such decisions. They meaning the, what, magistrates? The judges, yeah, the judges of the family court. So what we are trying to demonstrate is that, well, this isn't necessarily a religious issue. Um, It's an abuse of a religious process, but the underlying uh, the underlying um, uh, character of what it is is abuse. It's just using a certain process to coerce and intimidate and control another person. And, and that argument's getting traction? Uh, in the family court, we're kind of waiting to see. Okay. <laughs> um, it has received uh, a very good response in the family violence courts, so in the magistrates' courts. So back in 2015, I was involved in a very um, groundbreaking case where we were able to successfully successfully argue that a husband's uh, long-term refusal to grant his wife a get uh, was characterised as psychological and emotional abuse within Mm. the Victorian family violence protection legislation. So the the magistrate picked up on it um, and, and ran with our submissions and she was happy to accept that that type of behavior um, was grounded in an attempt to coerce, coerce and control um, the, the wife in that case. 
uh, I think her words were that the, the get refusal was the ultimate exercise of dominance and control. Wow. Mm. That's, so that, that's that was huge. huge. Yeah. Yeah, that was really groundbreaking and this has opened the door to using intervention order proceedings and family violence um, law in, in support of a woman's um, being refused a get. So we are waiting for the next case to come through to be the follow-up case, really, because we don't know the extent mm. or the parameters of where this decision can take us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's a bit unclear how far we can push it reason being is because um, when making an intervention order, uh, the, the civil jurisdiction is invoked. So it's a, it essentially a civil order, the family violence protection order, but anybody that breaches that order uh, can be charged with a criminal offence. So then it becomes a criminal matter for the police to take involvement in. Well, hold on. <laughs> Can you say that again a bit slower? Yeah, a bit slower. Okay, sure. So a family violence intervention order is a civil order made by a civil court. Okay, so meaning the balance or the burden of proof is lower. Uh, right? it's, it's what on the balance of probabilities exactly. rather than yeah. rather than weight beyond reasonable doubt. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray for a year twelve <laughs> legal studies. So okay, so if someone comes to magistrate's court and says, "I want a." A family violence intervention order is that, mm-hmm. is that is that the same thing as an ABO or it's a different instrument? Same thing. Yeah, okay. we just call it intervention order in in Victoria, but here it would be uh, an apprehended violence order. And what what they call in America a restraining order? Yeah. Okay. So someone comes to a, a court and says, "I I feel threatened. I want an ABO against so and so." Then that then all they have to show is like a likelihood of harm rather than like definite. They don't have, it's, a, it's a civil court, and so the standard of proof on them is lower? Well, they have to show that on the balance um, that there has been family violence, so there has been, let's say, a physical assault, or there's been emotional or psychological abuse, financial or economic abuse as well as characterised as family violence, so they have to demonstrate that. Um, the courts are, are quite um, willing to give interim orders um, mm-hmm. based on an application, uh, particularly if there is, um, uh, let's say, um, physical injuries that can be demonstrated at that initial application. But they, they generally err on the side of the victim and put in place an interim order uh, and then list it later on for a, a trial or a contested hearing um, at which the, the burden falls on, on the, uh, the, the victim, let's say, or the, the family member bringing the application to demonstrate mm-hmm. that the family violence exists and that there's a risk of it occurring. Okay, so let me see if I got this now. Okay. So typical case would be a woman comes to the court and this would be in a family a family violence court, you said? Yeah. Okay, so a woman would come to a family violence court and say, um, I want a, 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 an ABO against my husband because he's been beating me. Mm-hmm. And what they'll say is, all right, well, here's an interim order. So for now... The ABO is active, but then we need you to show up in court and justify that um, to civil standards, to like, it seems likely that this is a real danger. Yep. That's right so far? Spot on. Okay, cool. <laughs> so that so it's in, in that sort of context, in the context of, of proving abuse, that you receive this landmark victory in 2015. Exactly, exactly. So to take it a step further, in our case, what we had was a woman who had already been given an intervention order, mm-hmm. a final intervention order, meaning that it had gone through the process of a trial um, and the magistrate had decided, yes, on balance, we can 
you've demonstrated that there was family violence, I'm putting in place a 12-month order. That order was coming up for expiration or it was due to expire. So a few months before it did, she put in a request that it be extended based on the fact that A, the husband had breached the order on several occasions um, and B, where we came in and we said, but he's also refused to give um, a religious divorce in in this situation Mm -hmm. and it's been a prolonged period of of failing to provide the religious divorce Uh, and we are... Uh, submitting that this is a further instance of family violence that's been committed while the other the, the while the family violence intervention order was in place. Right. Okay. So we were bringing it in not on its own merits, but um, as part of an, an application for the extension of an order. Okay. So there were other breaches as well. Yes. But you also submitted the get refusal, like yes. his refusal to hand over the religious document. Yeah as part of it and and then the judge took well to that yes yes she was um we called uh, expert evidence from uh, it was a, a community rabbinic leader who came to uh, i guess uh give evidence to the court about the impact that the get refusal has on a woman from a religious perspective meaning that she until she gets the religious divorce she can't remarry mm-hmm. and even if she decides to repartner um, in let's say a civil union or a de facto relationship, any children born to that partnership will be considered uh, what we call a mamza, or loosely translated as a bastard in, in English parlance, but which really is a, a separate category of social stigma that is um, stays with that child forever. Okay, and so in terms of uh, impact that. If, if the woman repartners before this document's given, that's a problem. Yes. If the man does, not as much of a problem? No. So uh, a man would be restricted from, let's say, remarrying in an orthodox ceremony mm-hmm. unless he could demonstrate that either he has provided the religious divorce or, and this is a loophole available to men that's not available to women, uh, he's obtained the signatures of 100 rabbis. What? <laughs> you haven't heard of the 100 rabbi document? <laughs> no, this isn't even me feigning ignorance for the sake of people listening at home. This is what? I can see on your face you're genuinely perfect. Yeah, well, what is this? It is a halachic loophole that if a husband who wants to remarry and his wife is refusing to receive the get obtains 100 signatures from rabbis, um, I think they have to be a two, two different in two different countries, um, so it can't be from the one jurisdiction, but in multiple jurisdictions, uh-huh. um, he can remarry halachically according to Jewish law. That is so bizarre. Right. Not many people have heard of him. I I don't I don't know of this sort of thing <laughs> happening any, anywhere else. It, what yeah. what's the do you know the source for this offhand? Not offhand. Um, no, it is a bit mysterious, but it, it exists. And, and it works. Are, yeah, I are, think there are there are instances of people doing this. In Israel, it's very common. In the US, it's used as well. And well. the third loophole is um, applies to uh, Jews of um, Sephardic background, mm-hmm. so the, the Moroccan and Spanish Jews, because uh, they are still, according to Jewish law, allowed to hold more than one wife. Mm-hmm. They can marry. They they can have polygamous relationships. Whereas um, Ashkenazic Jewry, uh, this was uh, circumscribed back in around one thousand. CE by Rabbeinu Gershon. Mm. Um, Didn't his edict recently expire? 
<laughs> I, I, I mean this seriously. I, I think these things last a thousand years or something. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> That's right. worth looking into. Um, it would be a bit of a game changer. <laughs> I, I heard that it expired and then like the, um, the Ashkenazi rabbis sort of looked at each other and went, we should probably keep this going. <laughs> yeah, so now it's a custom of all Israel. Everyone cool with that? Okay. <laughs> so I think it's still banned, but yeah. not... Anyway, but that's but that's the Ash- so for the Ashkenazim it was it was banned. Yeah. But Sephardim didn't have the same social policy put in place exactly. at the time. Yeah. So they can technically uh, remarry mm-hmm. um, in an Orthodox ceremony, even if a, di- a religious divorce hasn't been affected. Okay, but but help me understand here. Okay. So a rabbi, so a guy comes to a rabbi and says, "Hey, I'd like to marry this woman." And the rabbi says, "Well, you know, aren't you still married?" To this other woman, he's like, "Oh no, we we're we're very separated." It's like, "Do you give a get?" It's like, "No, no, she's still technically my wife." Yeah. Laura says, "Oh well, then I can't I can't marry you." Mm. And he says, "But hold on a second, <laughs> I have this petition signed by a hundred rabbis. Here you go." And and then the rabbi goes, "Oh well, in that case, let's go ahead with the ceremony." So I should have made a disclaimer is that okay. I'm not a, an expert in in Jewish law. My expertise in Australian family okay. law, but as much as I can, I try and um, get my head around the, the Jewish legal pr- principles as they're relevant, of course, to to um, the issues that we're dealing with. But yes, even though the, the way you've summarised it, although um, it seems trite, it that's how it works. That's how it operates. Okay, so I get like that. Maybe he's sort of overcome the obvious halachic boundary to being remarried mm. but I, I i'm just trying to play this out in my head yeah and, yeah and my i would imagine that the rabbi would go i don't care i mean like yeah technically you're halachically able to be married mm. but as a matter of conscience i'm not right. going to do this and that's why what we were talking about before about framing it as abuse is why it's so significant and so important because mm-hmm. many rabbis don't get that aspect of it so they'll say well there might be legitimate reasons for withholding the divorce no pause stop there's never a leg- legitimate reason for withholding the divorce ever never, never is what we're trying why? to say um, because, at least in the way it works in Australia, is that um, anything to do with matrimonial breakdown, so whether it be parenting arrangements or uh, property settlement or child support, whatever it is, is not within the jurisdiction of the rabbinical courts at all. The proper place, the proper forum to deal with all of those issues is in the family court or by, by negotiations. So the religious divorce aspects need to be kept completely separate. The only issue that could potentially arise is if there's the possibility of the the marriage being reconciled. Mm -hmm. Um, Then it would be dangerous to, you know, finalise the religious divorce if the couple were to, you know, reconcile and then live together as as husband and wife, but the divorce has been given already. Okay. But if it's very clear that the relationship is beyond reconciliation, that it's broken down irretrievably, they've been separated for 12 months, there's, there, in my experience, there's no legitimate reason for withholding that divorce other than to extract some sort of benefit. And it's it always seems to be that, that same pattern of just attempting to use it for blackmail purposes, yeah. effectively. Yeah. I don't know if blackmail is a technical <laughs> term that I shouldn't be using here. It's not often not so as overt as that. 
Mm-hmm. It's maybe a bit more subtle in its in its use. Sometimes it is. Sometimes I've seen straight out a husband will say in a negotiation, I'll give you your get if you give me $250,000. Whoa. It can be as black and white as that. That tell me there's tell me there's a criminal case sitting inside that. <laughs> Please tell me there's a criminal case sitting there. Uh, look, it's it's if you're in a negotiation um, and everything is kept within the confines of that negotiation or mediation, it's it's all done in good faith. So um, it, it's a bit hard to then extract that and and bring a criminal um, oh, okay. uh, action against that, but. Clearly here, like, good faith has a specific legal (laughs) definition that I'm not getting. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, right, so just uh, to take a few steps back, I'm just trying to think where where we've left the tangent. We were back in the magistrate's court with the rabbi giving expert evidence. Obviously, that um, helped the court understand the consequences in practice of the the husband's uh, refusal to grant the get. So um, the manifest injustice or the manifest um, uh, unfairness to the wife in in being denied the get, being denied the the religious divorce, and the obvious advantage to the husband in doing so, um, and situated within the context of that relationship and the clear um, patterns of abuse that had taken place, not only physical abuse, but there were instances of physical abuse, but in just the manipulation, the emotional um, degradations, the uh, the put-downs, the psychological um, abuse that had been ongoing, um, it was clearly an, ex- an extension of that mm. in terms of the abusive behaviour. So uh, we had a fantastic outcome. The magistrate... Um, gave our client an indefinite intervention order, mm. meaning for the rest of her life she has that protection order. Oh, that's wonderful. Which is um, quite hard to get these days. And so so you managed to position mm. the um, the get refusal as part of this ongoing campaign of abuse on all fronts. Exactly, exactly. Wow. So the follow-up will be, and what we're waiting for, is to see whether a, an instance of get refusal on its own would be accepted by a magistrate um, on its own terms as uh, psychological and emotional abuse, enough to get over that balance to demonstrate that this is family violence, it's ongoing, um, and we need an intervention order for the protection of of the woman in this instance. So that's going to be the next case. Wow. (laughs) And and I've... You know, if if you can say are these, there are, there are cases pending right now with this. Uh, commonly, in the intervention order proceedings, we tend to resolve things quite early on in the proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now you do. <laughs> do you know what I did in twenty fifteen? <laughs> I can do it to you too. Yeah, that's it. Um, is that is that like do do people know that now when they come into rooms with you? Well, that's what I was. We were talking about how important our shift of language is and the awareness of the um, this characterization of abuse um, and the abusiveness of it and the involvement um, and scrutiny of the media and the awareness in the mm-hmm. community, um, both Jewish and non-Jewish communities, um, because it impacts on the uh, a person considering their own behavior and, um, and the threat of being slapped with an intervention order, particularly if somebody uh, you know, has a professional career or it's not a good look. Right. It's really not a good look. So, uh, it, it's been very effective 
in, in resolving things early to say, well, you know, we had this great case and you don't want to be number two. And um, it, it tends to resolve things earlier on and we get the gift sooner rather than later. Fantastic. Mm. Muzzle top on that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good team effort. We had some really, I had a great barrister mm-hmm. um, who knows intervention orders like the back of his hand. Um, we had a support team. One of my colleagues from um, the Unchained My Heart Committee was involved as well. So it was it was a real combined team effort, um, and the client itself to stick it out and go through it. it it's a very emotional, emotionally challenging thing to do, uh, to be in court and to give evidence um, on something so personal. Um, yeah, sure. So it was everything aligned to bring it to get to such a good outcome. Fantastic. It was. Uh, so I, again, this is my legal ignorance showing. Does precedent law work similarly in civil and criminal cases? In the magistrate's court or the family violence magistrate's court, it's a, a little bit different uh-huh. um, because of the nature of the of the cases, um, because they are so sens- sensitive, they aren't published. Oh, um, really? So the lower, lower courts... Um, family law in general family cases, violence. family violence courts in general don't publish results not the yeah not the in the lower courts yeah right. i oh, think if it as it goes if it went on appeal and it went to a higher court then those cases are but with um identifying criteria of the parties involved withheld or changed um but lower instances ju- judgments aren't published um and mas- magistrates aren't bound by a decision made by another magistrate okay they're only bound by the, the higher courts so it is very plausible that you have a magistrate that's not so familiar with family violence. Let's say they sit on tax issues or petty crime or, you know, and they don't get the nuances in what's involved in family violence, being the manipulation of power and control. And they may get a get refusal case and say, no, no, mm. this doesn't meet my understanding of the legal principles and, and throw it out. Um, but the more we do the awareness raising and the um, educational aspects, particularly within the legal communities, um, uh, that amongst judges, amongst lawyers, there's a, a, a more of an understanding and awareness of the issue, hmm. um, which is also leading to better outcomes. That's fantastic. It's because that would be my... my uh... <laughs> See, now, now I'm thinking Jewishly, my my Havimina, my Svarachetzina. Okay. That would be my... Um... My initial thought would be that that if a judge is looking at like the list of uh, charges or the list of assertions, mm. it would you know it'd be, and he's he's calling her and he's coming too close and also like he's refusing to give this religious document. He's like, what is this? Like the the standard reaction would be, a I'm baffled. B mm. why is this such a big deal? Yeah, and so that's shifting slowly. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I wouldn't even say slowly. It's it's really in the last few years there's been a dynamic shift. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with a general increasing awareness about family violence um, mm. following the Royal Commission into Family Violence in mm. Victoria, which was in 2016. So there's just across the board community understanding of the gendered nature of family violence and the nuances and subtleties that are involved in su- such behaviour. Yeah. So with that has come. Um, an openness to other forms of family violence that were not initially recognised. Right, like that attitude of, oh my God, all this stuff that's been happening behind closed doors and like in really subtle ways that we didn't quite catch, now we're starting to get it. That's that's sort of a a rising tide in a sense that lifts all these birds. Yeah. So you're the 2015 uh, 
decision judgment you said you you mentioned that a lot of them it was are not published Mm -hmm. with this one was no this one wasn't um it was featured in a um i think a news article Mm -hmm. um can't remember which newspaper but they generated some coverage and some awareness uh of of it um which was really helpful in um, alerting other women and other um solicitors family law practitioners to the possibility of using intervention orders for this purpose um so Hang on, using intervention orders for to what? To bring about the end of a, of a get abuse case. Oh, okay. So I was thinking of it the other way. Like I could get how get abuse could be a way to bring about more intervention orders. How, yeah. how, do you, how does that reverse? How do you use intervention orders to, as a lever? Oh, to no, get, you're, get you're spot on in terms of using, using the process, the application for an intervention order or the ongoing proceedings in the family violence intervention order case mm-hmm. to bring the get issue in into that. So... Because we can't, because the decision isn't published, um, getting some uh, media attention, community awareness, um, just to make it known that there is this possibility is is crucial, is quite vital. Media is allowed to report on these cases? So long as the identifying factors of the parties aren't mentioned. So, um, yeah, and the court, you can't mention the name of the the location of the court, the names of the parties, um, or any other kind of identifying things. Okay. in general terms. So when, when we, 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 we're calling it, you know, the, the 2015 judgment, does it have like a fancy name with a V in the middle <laughs> or no? It doesn't. No. It's, uh, what, what, can I ask what it's called, like just casually around the office? Uh, I call it the case of B&J. The case of B&J. Yeah, using the initials. So if I'm doing a, you know, a presentation or speaking to some colleagues or where, wherever it is, I'll, I'll refer to it as that. The case of B&J from 2015. Cool. <laughs> B and J from twenty fifteen. So straight after B and J from twenty fifteen, right, when the when that uh, judgment was handed down and and got the media coverage, what was what was the initial feedback you got? What do you remember the first few days, weeks afterwards? A lot of women came out and said, um, it, "This is this is um, hits exactly what we're experiencing." Um, and it describes exactly what we've been through and we wish we knew about this possibility or thank you for bringing, opening up this door to this possibility. Um, there was a, a general recognition that um, finally it, um, the, the behaviour was being called out for what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of positive feedback from Jewish mm-hmm. women particularly. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And then... Uh, Following on with it, was there uh, a shift in the way, a shift in the way that you did business afterwards? That's a bit of a broad one. <laughs> yeah, um, a, a lot more um, people contacting me to find out more information. So let's say other family lawyers that were practicing that had Jewish clients that didn't even know that this was an issue, uh, and now their client was aware of it and asking them what could be done, and they were a bit at loss to say, "Well, I'm not sure. Let me give that." that lawyer call I saw her name somewhere maybe she has an idea um so it's uh, been responding to that to calls from colleagues to calls from clients to um working with the Melbourne Baked Inn to bring an awareness of um the legal aspects of uh, religious divorce refusals um it, it's yeah there's been a, a big um response from all different sectors of the community wanting to know more information um, and um, see 
what their options are. That's great. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about um, the Unchain My Heart in, Incorporated Working Committee. How do you, how do you become involved with them? So the, um, the, the coalition came together right around, they held their first event probably two or three days after we had this decision, this successful decision um, in the magistrate's court. So uh, it was just the, the timing was impeccable. Um, they came together under the auspices of Susie Ivany, who's the chair, mm-hmm. um, who's been working in, in the space of helping Agunot um, through different platforms for a long time. So she, I think, um, sits on the International Council of Jewish Women um, and uh, has been working in the space for a while. And, and it was really her initiative to say, well, we need to get some grassroots movement happening in Melbourne um, and do something. So she approached all the different women's organisations and said, let's come together. And they did, and they held their first event. Um, and uh, at that same time, we were having this legal success. So um, the, our two worlds collided. Um, and Serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they invited me to sit on the committee, um, and I've been there s- since then. Fantastic. And the sort of work that uh, you do there is the sort of things we've been discussing of raising awareness and trying to shift the way that uh, get refusal is perceived in exactly. society. Yeah. Let's talk about something to shift completely to the side. Um, I, I noticed that you uh, that your website huh, has you um, has like some one of the things that you talk about specialising in is prenups. Okay. Do you have do you have a general position on prenups? Um. The religious Jewish ones or general financial agreements? Okay, again, real ignorance <laughs> here. What are, what are religious Jewish ones? Okay, so there is a document called mm-hmm. the Rabbinic Prenup that's been endorsed by the Rabbinical Council of Victoria, which is, it's really a two-page document that says in the event that the marriage breaks down, then the parties agree that they'll go to either the Sydney Beit Din or the Melbourne Beit Din um, to... Uh, bring about the um, transfer of the get, so to give or to re- mm. receive a get. Okay, so many of the synagogues in Melbourne um, give this to their couples to sign before they get married, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but except, not at all legally binding. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's probably, to put it bluntly, it's um, good enough to wrap your sandwich in wow. from a legal perspective. Okay, so secular prenups. Uh, do you feel like everyone should get them some people should get them what's the deal with that so the difficulty with um, prenups in australian family law is that they're very technical documents Mm -hmm. they're very expensive documents and they require both sides to get independent legal advice so they end up taking a long time um, and being very expensive so generally across the board um, even in in you know non-religious settings um, people will only or people tend to use prenups, or we call them financial agreements, where they have acquired significant assets prior to the marriage. Often you see it typically in a second marriage mm-hmm. um, where the person that's acquired the assets wants to protect those assets for, let's say, their children um, and not for their new partner. Um, that's quite where, often where you see it. Um, and because they are these, you know, 50, sometimes 50 page documents that um, need to be properly drafted by a lawyer and then taken to a, another lawyer to review and consult with and advise on. Um, it's not an effective way 
of um, preempting or, or providing a preemptive relief to a, a get refusal issue. Right. Whereas in other jurisdictions, such as the US um, and Israel, they're much more effective because their laws allow for the more fluid or more um, uh, flexible agreements um, in, in a prenuptial capacity. And, and prenups are uh, what much less difficult in um, in America and Israel. Yeah, the legal requirements to satisfy their prenups are um, not as high as they are in Australia, to put it bluntly. So uh, there are there are uh, instances of people putting uh, get provisors into prenups in America and Israel, and those being legally upheld. Yeah. So uh, the one, the Rabbinical Council of America uses one where the um, underlying um, effect of it is that for every day that a spouse, and it could be the husband or wife, refuses to give or receive a get, there is a, an enforcement of a, um, a maintenance um, order. So let's say it's, what was it? I can't remember the exact figure, but let's say $150 for every day that the get is not given. Whew. So, you know, you can pay the $150 or you can give the get or receive the get. So in nine times out of 10, it will be effective because nobody wants to keep on paying for a marriage that doesn't exist when they could bring about its resolution quite quickly. Right. There are those people, though, unfortunately, and this is the, I guess, the um, difficulty in this issue that you will have people um, that will do whatever they can and to withhold it, forget purely in a way of um, means of exacting revenge or out of spite or um, purely acrimonious reasons. And no sanction or no threat of sanction um, would be strong enough to, to remove that conviction for them. There's really not much we can do um, in that. In those cases, that's really over to the rabbis to say, um, well, we consider this um, a reason to annul the marriage. Let's say there was a recent case in Israel where a, a woman had been seeking a get for, you know, more than 20 years. Um, the rabbinical court there had even gone, taken all the steps that it could to the point of jailing the husband. He had been in, sitting in jail for 18 years rather than give his wife a get. Really? That was the extent to which he was willing to go to make her life a living nightmare. Wow. There was nothing more that the the courts in Israel could do until um, they, and I think I'm getting this right, that there was um, the Centre for Women's Justice over there convened a private baiting, so mm -hmm. a private rabbinical court. They bypassed the, the, um, the standard, the, the standard rabbinate, rabbinate yeah. um, and got three orthodox rabbis that, you know, took had the courage to come together to say that, this marriage um, in the circumstances needs to be annulled because of the abusive nature of it. Um, there was also, I think, mental health issues involved and that the marriage from the outset was not a proper functioning marriage. I'm mm. simplifying it and it's not on the tip of my tongue because I haven't read it recently, but that was the crux of it. So the only way that that woman could move on with her life was by the marriage being essentially null and void from the beginning. Okay. Well... Talia Fagum, I'd, I'd love to uh, ask you a whole lot more questions, but I'm aware that each uh, six-minute segment is valuable. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me.
with thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.